Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast with Tom Keen, Jonathan Farrow, and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Terminal. There is a crisis from, call it, Winnipeg in the normal winter of Canada on, through, on down through the Dakotas and to Texas. We've seen the snow at the Alamo. It is a freeze. It is, in many cases, a blizzard with massive hardship. We tried to go out and find the guy qualified. And yes, that would be the Railroad Commission of Texas Commissioner Jim Wright. But not for the reasons that you think. Jim Wright grew up west of Corpus Christi. He's a legitimate guy who knows about the animals of Texas, the rodeo, bull riding and all. He has a visceral knowledge of what people are putting up with right now. Jim, we want to talk to you about the electric grid and the rest of it, the energy markets. But I've got to ask you this morning, you're living it. Tell us what the ranchers are doing across the southern Midwest. Well, I can tell you from being a rancher myself, uh, we've been out uh, repairing pipes. So we make sure that we have water and energy uh, uh, to our livestock and and water to our homes. Is there a risk here or with modern technology, is it going to be different than 1949 or 1889? I don't see it being much different uh, right now from those times. You know, pipes pipes seem to break whenever it gets cold and, and you still have to go out and fix those. Well, Jim, given the fact that extreme temperature may become something more normal or perhaps uh, more regularly occurring going forward, what do you expect to be necessary to fortify the electricity grid as we know it? You know, I think that uh, we're going to have to take a stronger look at uh, who's allowed priority on our grid system. Right now, we're saying that the renewable energy has that priority, which is discouraging our 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 reliable energy source, which seems to be more natural gas, fossil fuel related, uh, from coming in and building the plants needed to, to pick up this power demand in time, times like these. Wait, uh, I just really want to clarify this, Jim. Are you saying that the uh, problem here lies with the wind turbines, and some of the renewable energies, and not with some of the pipelines and, and freezing and, and other issues there? Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, in, in a certain way. You know, I, I think that... Uh, as we here in Texas have said that renewable energy has priority on our grid, we've discouraged uh, people coming in and building power plants that run off of natural <clears throat> gas, which is more of a reliable source than, than as everyone knows, wind and, and uh, sun is. So I think that what we're experiencing today is the fact that we just don't have enough plants to keep up with our demand during times like these. What does the Railroad Commission of Texas need to do to dovetail a boom economy and the capitalism of Texas with the constraints, the limits that you face ecologically? You know, I think that uh, one of those big things is, is more along the lines of educating people on the benefits of fossil fuel and the benefits of our renewable energy. You know, both, both have places here in Texas. I think that we need to make sure that we are smart enough to make those coexist and along, alongside one another, but while still keeping uh, a focus on improving our environment. You know, when I look at the environment, I look at that in two ways. It's not only what mankind's impact is to our planet Earth, but it's also our, uh, the impact caused by the debt that we're accumulating, trying to trying to uh, 
continue to protect what mankind's uh, uh, impact we seem to think we have on, on, on Earth. You know, we, we've had some large issues here in Texas with flaring, and, and, and uh, I think it's important that we in Texas start developing more of a market for our natural gas so that that, that continues to be a, a good, reliable source and right. does not create any type of impact on as far as emissions is concerned. Jim Wright, you've got a crisis right now in this weather. The crisis was your stunning victory a year ago uh, within this important position for the state of Texas. How did you pull that off? How did a rancher from basically west of Corpus Christi pull off the victory you pulled off? And how can you provide that lesson as leadership to move Texas forward? You know, I think it shows that uh, people in Texas are, are looking at people they're putting in office today to be more of a, a leader with a business mind. You know, I've been in business pretty much all of my life with my own companies and uh, work closely in the, in the oil and gas industry and all energy sectors. And the people that are out, out in that sector seem to dominate what we have here in Texas, especially in the rural areas, and they know what that means to our economy. And I, I think that that is that's the key to success is, is people that know boots on the ground and how to get issues resolved. Jim, it's fantastic to have you on the program with us, sir. Please come back soon. Stay close and we wish the state well. Jim right there, the Texas Railroad Commissioner. I look at the Swiss 20-year yield as sort of a keel of the boat of Europe. John, it's about ready to move to a positive statistic once more. It's been a negative 20-year yield yeah. in Switzerland, and it's come up like a moonshot. I know Alan knows this well. I would go to Bund as well, Tom. Bund yields moving yeah, with Treasury yields as well. Let's bring in Alan Ruskin, Deutsche Bank Chief International Strategist. Alan, let's just start right there, that line. The bottom line, the only reason to be bearish is there is no reason to be bearish. What's your takeaway, Alan? Well, I think the main cautionary note to the bullish equity view is really that uh, there's good reasons to be bearish in terms of bonds. I think the fixed income story uh, revolves around uh, the reflation that we're going on, but also the risks are very much tilted towards excess reflation. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying uh, we're talking about inflation per se, because inflation is very much a lagging indicator, lags growth by about 18 months. But in terms of growth and the potential for overheating from fiscal policy, which is flat on in, into if we get anything close to the 1.9 trillion from Biden, money supply growth, which is uh, the highest ever, financial conditions are as easy as we've ever had. There's something for everybody, I think, in terms of reflation. You know, I look, Alan, at, at, at this move that we've had and the idea that we've given up worried about inflation moving up. We have been wrong, 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 wrong. I mean, you've been doing this for four, five, six decades. Alan, I mean, we have been wrong on inflation moving higher. Why won't we be wrong again? Uh, we might be wrong again. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a tough call. I think we know where all the risks currently lie. As I mentioned earlier, you know, the lags are long, so we won't know whether we're right or wrong for a long period of time. But, uh, you know, when we think in terms of the things that are disinflationary, part of it just relates to the calculation. The cyclical elements will be inflationary, but we have lots of things which are not cyclical. Things like medical care, things like education. A lot of the services don't necessarily respond to higher growth. So 
we might not see it in the statistics, but uh, the cyclical elements will almost certainly show some uptick. Alan, is the reflationary trade dependent on central banks remaining this accommodative forever? I don't think so. Look, I think the, uh, you know, the Fed clearly doesn't want to take away the punch bowl in terms of their flexible average inflation targeting regime. You know, if they're true to that, they're not going to be hiking rates for uh, this year. They're not going to be hiking rates next year, probably only hike in 2023. So, you know, I think in that sense, uh, there's not a huge amount of risks. I think the bigger issue is what the market does and what the bond market does. So the market is going to tighten for the Fed to some extent. And I think that's going to constrain some of the bullions that we're seeing in risky assets. Well, Alan, let's talk about the energy story as well, because crude's been absolutely flying even before this deepening energy crisis in the United States of America. I've heard a lot of people in the last couple of months talking about at the start of another commodity super cycle. Alan, does that resonate with you? I don't know about a super cycle, but I, I like uh, oil and uh, our oil guys, you know, are, are clearly behind that call in terms of, you know, favorable oil trades. Uh, the good news there is that unlike a lot of other markets which are being preemptive or thinking forward and it can price things forward aggressively, at least the storage costs in oil tend to mean that uh, you don't price quite far uh, ahead. And I think that helps one in terms of thinking that oil can go higher in the future. And that's what's interesting, I think, is if you look at the curve today, the backwardation we see in the forwards curve is quite extraordinary. So, uh, you know, I think that also hints that you can sort of pick up, I think, DEC, WTI around 55. That still seems like a decent bet. Alan, you do such good work on the history at all times. What is this like? Is there a compare and contrast to a previous moment or time that you can grab on here? Honestly, Tom, uh, you mentioned four or five decades, not quite five or six decades, uh, <laughs> but closer to four decades of work. And I've never seen anything like this at all in terms of, um, you know, the, the ease of policy. I mentioned earlier, you know, the fiscal stimulus outside wartime, uh, extraordinary money supply growth like we've never seen before. Every indicator within financial conditions, equities, credit spreads, the exchange rate, all are extraordinarily easy. Now, we have come off an, you know, a, a particular shock, uh, one of the, you know, really the sharpest shock I've ever seen in terms of the virus. But equally, when we get the vaccine, we should be rebounding in the other direction. So you've got policy compounding that rebound. So um, you know, we really haven't seen anything like this before. And we probably are going to see GDP growth rates, um, you know, our baseline without uh, the 1.9 trillion uh, Biden fiscal stimulus, just maybe something like a 1 trillion uh, fiscal package, is 6% plus GDP growth. We're looking at a 8% type number if we get the full fiscal package that Biden is promising. Ellen, this is exactly why what you're talking about, to tie this all together, this is exactly why people are saying that the old models of what a bubble is, of what overheated is, don't count. Because this is a new era of central bank stimulus. It is a new era of reflation with respect to fiscal stimulus. Do you agree? Do the old models not work anymore? And we can't count on them to ring the alarm bells saying there is too much froth in the system. Well, I think we struggle to uh, come up with accurate pricing and uh, appropriate frameworks when interest rates are zero. 
But as interest rates normalize, and if they normalize at the back end of the curve, then I think we'll start to reevaluate in terms of you know what appropriate P ratios are for a given bond yield. And I think that will uh, lead to you know some rethinking in terms of fair valuations. But absolutely, if policy is this easy, we don't really know. Uh, you know, how to appropriately value things. And we're making a bet and uh, making considerations that relate to uh, whether we will see inflation uh, 18 months hence or not, really. That, to me, is the macro question of the day. Alan, great to catch up, sir. And I'm Ruskin at Deutsche Bank. Thank you. Right now, we're going to switch back to what is a monthly visit and a required visit. Gideon Rose is with the Council on Foreign Relations, their distinguished fellow, and guides foreign affairs. Just a superb job of resurrecting the magazine into immediacy. And the immediacy is the decline and fall. Can America ever lead again? And you nail it, Gideon, with a chapter of fragmented power. How fragmented are we? Uh, We are Humpty Dumpty, and we are just beginning to put this slightly back together with crazy glue and hoping that uh, it doesn't fall down again before the glue sets. Gideon, can you give a sense of the import of having a global leader right now as we still have a pandemic very much in the forefront with mutating strains and the idea that this is here to stay? Well, the pandemic emphasized that there was a real world out there that bites back and that government is not just a game that Americans play with each other and that politics isn't just a rhetorical blood sport. There are consequences, there are policies. Most people used to think that government is supposed to do something to protect the people from external dangers, internal dangers, and advance their interests. And when the government really didn't do anything about the pandemic, at least in the short term, uh, it, it seemed to fundamentally Uh, challenge that entire notion. And the world looked on and said, you guys aren't just supposed to be the government for the United States. You're supposed to be de facto running the world as well. And when the world just basically was left to go to its own devices, like Lord of the Flies under pressure, everybody went to their own national interests. And essentially the world started to fragment. And the order and the team that the United States had been leading for several decades, ever since the end of World War II, fitfully, haltingly, in different ways, started to break up or stagnate. And the question now is, okay, there's a captain who's back in, you know, Dennis Rodman's come back from Las Vegas and is partying and now the Bulls are ready to play and something's actually going to happen. What's going to happen? The world is watching to see if the United States can regain its consciousness as a mature, responsible government, both domestically and internationally. And so far, they don't necessarily like every single policy because you're never going to find every single policy because a lot of different players in the world. But so far, people are breathing a sigh of relief that some of the craziness seems to be over. Gideon, let's fold in this fold in this conversation to the vaccine rollout. Do you think the vaccine rollout of the last, say, three months or so is bringing countries further together or pushing them further apart? Uh, well, I would say right now it's pushing them further apart because everyone's sort of vying to get the vaccines and it's a sort of crawling over each other to try and get the vaccine on the line. So it's a beggar type, uh, beggar thy neighbor type situation. But over time, as the vaccines actually kick in, as we start getting something approaching herd immunity down the road, as things, as the cooperate, as the 
circumstances in which cooperation can take hold after everybody is a little bit less scared, then you have a government in charge now in the United States that may be in a role to play the sort of calm uh, team leader, bringing people back together after the crisis. We're still in the depths of the crisis, obviously, and everybody is still completely freaked and everybody is still racing to try and get an immediate advantage. But as things get better over the course of 2021, the opportunities to focus on the upside rather than just getting out of the immediate crisis and the down and, and escaping the immediate downsides might become more apparent. And Gideon, I think that's when the payoffs in the Biden administration will start to come uh, more apparent. Gideon, help me here with the agenda of the president. The president's going to do a road trip, I assume, to Europe to, you know, regreet the allies, et cetera, meet the queen or whatever. And then there has to be some kind of Asia swing. Is Beijing on the itinerary? Uh, you know, the details of that, uh, certainly the China relationship, the Biden administration understands it needs to rebuild its alliances first because the United States does not play international politics as an individual, it plays as a team leader. The Bush administration, the uh, Trump administration failed to recognize that and the rest of the team was going, what's going on? Since 1945, you have been the leader of a global alliance that has essentially run the entire world. What are you talking about, this only America thing? The Biden administration recognizing that it is team leader first and foremost has made mending its relations with its core allies the first agenda item. But dealing with China and the U.S.-China relationship will clearly be the single greatest challenge over the course, not just of the Biden administration for American foreign policy, but for at least the next decade and maybe the next generation or two of American foreign policy. And so the question is, can the United States and China manage their relationship, which is clearly somewhat conflictual, but does not yeah. need to go to war? Can they manage it with that and keep it within tracks and on rails? Gideon, always great to catch up. Appreciate your time this morning, sir. Thank you. Gideon Rose there of CFR. Matty Zhu joining us now on this market from Credit Suisse, the chief equity derivative strategist. This market is grinding higher up another 21 on the S&P and we've got 126 on a US 10-year. Manny, just walk me through your thinking right now, that relationship between the direction of 10-year yields and what happens with the broader equity market. Yeah, hey, hey, John. Um, so I think we've gotten a lot of questions around inflation from investors in recent weeks, um, given the move in, in break-evens. And the point that I make here is that it's important to differentiate like, what we're talking about when it comes to inflation. <clears throat> Are we talking about a temporary overshoot of inflation this year due to reopening, due to all this you know, pent-up demand that everyone's talking about? Or are we talking about a sustained increase, sustained runaway inflation, right? I think the Fed really cares about the uh, latter. I think it, it doesn't really care about the former. And I have not heard anyone make a real credible case for the latter. And I think in this case, when it comes to inflation, it actually helps that Powell is not a trained economist or doesn't have a formal uh, economics training like Yellen or Bernanke because he's less wedded to economic theory that says, you know, as unemployment comes down, inflation must rise, right? I think he's looking at the empirical data, which shows him that inflation is nowhere to be found in the developed world of the last 20 years. And as such, you know, the Fed can be much more focused on its unemployment mandate mm -hmm. without worrying about inflation. So what does that mean for markets? I think it's going to be very, very patient this year. I, I think you know, even if we get a big 
course PCE you know overshoot at some point this year due to reopening. You know, right. the Fed's able to stay very patient, and that's positive for equities and positive for a lot of the rotation trades that we've already started to see that I think has further room to run. Right, Mandy, help mere mortals here on a Tuesday morning with the Greeks. You're the derivative Zacid uh, at Credit Suisse, <laughs> and the idea that you're moving up, you're in play. But there are signposts where enough is enough. What are the signals where you say in the derivative market, enough is enough? Look, I think you know, people are rightly worried about, I guess, you know, you know, the speed of the rally, how sustainable it is, whether people are, you know, investors are too complacent. So what I can say is, at least from the derivative market, positioning at the index level is still very cautious. And I say this, you know, with VIX still relatively elevated, even though markets making all-time highs. And I say it particularly if you look at, you know, the demand for protection at index level, that is still very, very robust. So measures of skew, measures of tail risk in the S&P, you know, is still near the highs that we've seen over the past year. So at least in the index market, the flows that we've seen, we're still seeing a lot of demand for protection, a lot of downside uh, hedges being put on. So I, I don't see that kind of euphoria yeah. that, um, you know, at the index level that, you know, I do at the single stock level, which is a totally different story. But I would say at the index level, positioning is still, you know, fairly cautious. Mandy, let's talk single stock. Let's talk GameStop and those hearings that Congress is going to be having <laughs> no. later this week, what's your sense in terms of whether there is something improper that occurred with the derivatives trading that you saw that you think they will hone in on and perhaps target? Look, I think the takeaway here is that this is much bigger than just one particular stock or you know one particular segment. There's a bigger impact from you know the retail trading that we've seen is that across broad swath of the market, we're seeing a complete repricing of upside risk. So, you know, the GameStop, the AMCs, you know, those are tiny, right? But within the S&P top 100 large cap stock, 30% are now trading with inverted call skew, which is just a technical term saying that the upside calls are now trading at a premium to the at the money calls. That is very, very unusual to put that percentage in perspective over the last uh, 10 years, that percentage historically has averaged about 6%, right? So now we're seeing over 30% of these names trade with inverted skew, when traditionally it's been about 6%. I think that's the legacy, that's the impact from the retail uh, option trading, where you know, obviously the retail consumer piece is typically buyers of upside call options. Yeah. And that's why we're seeing this upside call risk being repriced higher across, you know, not just small caps, not just the highly, you know, shorter names, but we're seeing it, you know, with the large cap tech names, with the financials, with the energy, you know, across broad um, uh, industries and, and sectors. So, Mandy, we've got 30 seconds with you, so forgive me for pushing you on the time. You are much smarter than me. <laughs> Put this into very simple terms for our audience this morning that might not be familiar with these themes. Yields are up, the equity market is up, and the VIX is up this morning. Why? Just in very simple terms. Why is volatility up with the move we're seeing higher? So I would say, you know, vol the VIX is not just a measure of volatility. It also incorporates demand for puts and calls. So all else equal, if we're seeing more demand for upside calls, that could drive the VIX higher. That is one way in which the VIX can go higher as the market is going higher. It's driven by demand for those upside calls. Mandy, thank you. I appreciate that. Mandy Sue there of Credit Suisse. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.
You can also listen worldwide on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on Bloomberg Television.